I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Memoir Book Club. And we have a really big announcement. February 27th, Sunday in Williamsburg at the gutter, we are doing our first ever True to God live show. And we want all the little New York City tri-state area worms in attendance, please. You guys, it's going to be so much fun. We are going to be discussing an essay instead of a whole book, which we will let you guys know in advance so we can have a real book club discussion. And also, fret not, we are coming to everybody's city soon. Well, not everybody's, but we're coming to a lot of cities soon. This year, we are beginning our tours, and I'm so excited to meet everybody in person. Me too. Also, this week, I want to say thank you to the fun and challenging June's Journey game. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the hidden object murder mystery game, June's Journey, you'll awaken your inner sleuth and step right into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the roaring 20s. Download June's Journey for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. We've done so much of talk now that I just want to get through this part real quick. If you are new here, the gist of it is we're a little bit judgy. We're doing our best. We're reading the book. We're giving our opinions. And if that's not for you, I respect that. I totally respect that. But maybe we should just mutually part ways now before we continue. Before we're in too deep. And now Ashley. Yes, Claire? The part of the week that I wait for every week. If your life was a memoir, what would last week's chapter be called? I would call last week's chapter Groundhog's Day because we did quite literally have a Groundhog's Day. I am honestly heartbroken for the groundhog that passed just before his big day. But I honestly just feel like winter is the same day every day for me. Yeah, the day before Groundhog's Day, the New Jersey groundhog committed suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say, if a woman claims that she can read the meaning of animals she's burnt at the stake like a witch and if a man can read the meaning of an animal then he's made mayor of the city (laughs) and we give him a holiday double standard i think yes anyway i do feel like i don't really have anything to say this week i feel like winter is just the same day over and over and over again and some days it's rainy and most days it's cloudy and some days it's snowing and that just has been my life this week claire if you were to give your last week a memoir chapter, what would you call it? Attitude of gratitude. Okay. Because you know when you get like a paper cut or you have a hangnail and it hurts so bad and you're like, wow, I can't even believe I've never even noticed how little my fingers hurt until now that I have this hangnail. And you're like, I'll never again not appreciate how much it doesn't hurt to have fingernails or like when you can't breathe through your nose because of a cold and you're like, why did I take for granted breathing through my nose? Well, today I made myself the most beautiful little avocado toast. Sure. And right as I was finishing it off, I was adding the accoutrements. I was adding a little hot sauce, a little salt, and then I added... Okay, so you went fucking ham on this avocado toast. Yeah, it's like my new thing since yesterday. This is the second day in a row I've done it. (laughs) As I was putting the pepper on... A pepper flake got in my nose, like lodged up near my eyeball. Oh my God. I sneezed for 30 minutes. (laughs) Holy shit. I excavation type sneezings to have a hot pepper up your nozzle. It was (laughs) brutal and I couldn't stop sneezing and and my beautiful avocado toast was right there just getting cold in front of my eyes. And every time I went to take a bite, I would sneeze. And then it was like this hard thing where it was like I didn't want to sneeze too close to the avocado toast. Also, you don't want to sneeze when you have toast in your mouth because then sometimes, you know, when when you like sneeze, when you have food in your mouth and it loops back up through your nose. It was although that might have helped push out. The chili pepper. I felt so bad for my little nose. You know when you feel like a part of your body is like working separately from the rest of your body? (laughs) Poor little nose was working so hard to get rid of the intruder and I could feel it trying with all of its little might. So I don't know what your situation in life is right now and I hope everybody out there is healthy and happy and peaceful. But as bad as things are, just think in addition to whatever's going on, you could also have a piece of pepper stuck up in your nose causing you to sneeze nonstop to the prevention of you getting to eat avocado toast. And that would be... 
insult to injury. Should we get into the book? Yeah. This week, we decided to dive into the rock and roll stylings of one Tommy Lee, not Jones. That's a different guy. Tommy Lee of Motley Crue. Of Pam Anderson fame, really. Of Heather Locklear fame as well. I'm so excited. Are you ready to take a trip into Tommy land with Tommy Lee? I honestly don't want to go there. I like don't want to become a citizen of Tommy land. I feel like it's one of those things where you get like common law citizenship after like 15 minutes and I don't want it. So we have to move quick. It's a work trip. Yeah. Tommy Lee was born Thomas Lee Bass in Athens, Greece on October 3rd, 1962 and raised in a California suburb by an American father and a Greek mother. This book, Tommy Land, came out in 2004. He's 41. I want to say, you guys know I have a tendency to fall for the rock star. I just love them. I think that even though they're evil people who do bad things, there's just like something so fun about them. Ashley gets dickmatized and I'm like always humiliated for her. (laughs) I'm like, he's not even here. It's just this dumb, illiterate book. Anyway, so this book, I did like a lot of cognitive effort to not fall in love with him. And it left me with like an absolute hatred for him. I think it's one of those things where I was like, don't love him, don't love him, don't love him. And then like the line between love and hate is uh, thin. But then I also don't like him. Like I genuinely don't like him. I have a lot of hope that if you can see that Tommy Lee would not be a good boyfriend to you, that maybe like your next boyfriend will be better. (laughs) I think that's like a good positive step in the right direction. I have set a bar low for you, haven't I? I'm sorry. I'm Listen, sorry. We've all been there. <laughs> you weren't around for my last boyfriend, so it's <laughs> it was only a timing situation on your half. Anyway, back to Tommy Lee. Back to Tommy Lee and my dickmatization problems. He does start this book with a conversation with someone named Dick. Do you want to be Tommy or do you want to be Dick? I'll be Dick. Okay, I'm Tommy. Good morning, my man. What's up? Well, besides me, I've been up for a while. I'm always up before you. You got that right. Fucking go back to sleep, would you? Why do you have to wake me up every morning? You know I like to sleep in. I'm up because I want to be up. It has nothing to do with you. You're just attached to me, bro. The life you're living is not about you, Tommy. It's about me. From your first trip to the bathroom in the morning to your last orgasm at night, it's all about me. I'm the man, bro. You're the co-pilot. If it weren't for me, you'd be asleep all day. And then where would you be? I'd be nice and rested. You'd be rested without a life. Listen, I'm busy enough, but you know what? You should make me your road manager, Tommy. I'm the only one who can wake you up on time. This is insane. My own dick is busting my balls. Dude, you can't be my road manager. You're a penis. Well, maybe you're right. A lot of road managers are dicks. Um, Okay, I think we could stop there, but please believe that it, it keeps going. It keeps going for another like three pages. And I will say it took me until that line to realize that he was talking to his dick. I thought he just had like a codependent best friend like me. <laughs> Damn, Ash. I'm not going to say anything because I feel like we've like dogged on you too much already this episode and we're only five minutes in, but you, you hear it. I know. I know. It's a problem. I'm the problem. No, never say that. So then he gets into the book, the State of the Union Address, aka Chapter One, spelled J-U-A-N. And he basically gets to what will be the stylization of this book. Also, I want to say every chapter is a state of something he really is high on his podium there giving you the state of things he sets up he's like it's about me it's not gonna be a normal book it's a fucking cool book and he also has these little post-its that go throughout so he has his ghostwriter that is on the cover with him it's not a ghost it's a co-writer 
And early on, there's an asterisk or a footnote at the bottom of the page. Hello, readers. Anthony Boza, Tommy's co-writer here. I'm going to do my best to provide you with all the salient facts and figures you'll need to make sense as best you can of your stay here in Tommyland. Right now, I'd like to direct your attention to these editorial notes that you'll find throughout your journey. They capture the dialogue that ensued between Tommy and our British editor at Simon & Schuster during the creation of this book. My heart goes out to that poor bloke, as should yours. Okay, so this book has three stylized editions. Yes. So there are asides in a funky, drippy text that are from the dick. The dick adds remarks. He gets hard and inserts himself into the page. Then there are these post-it notes from the editor at Simon & Schuster where he'll say something to Tommy, and then Tommy will refute that statement further on the post-it note. They'll be like, try and write this book better, or this chapter doesn't make any sense. They'll be like, fuck you. You don't understand rock and roll. It's not meant to make sense. And then there are asterisks and comments at the bottom from Anthony Boza. Who really thinks he's funny. And he and Tommy are just like riffing the whole time with each other. And you're just like, okay, you guys, fun jokes, but this makes truly no sense. And he also has to insert himself at actually pointless times. Like he'll insert himself to be like, by the way, if you've never heard of Greece, it's a country. And you're like, thanks, Anthony. Just to jump ahead just a few pages when the dick first interrupts. And he says, please don't go there. I barely survived. I had lost the will to live. Life was a cloudy day without end to me. This is about he didn't get to have sex in jail. There's an asterisk. And then the footnote is, sorry to interrupt again, readers, but for the sake of clarity, I must have you know that these um, eruptive insertions you will find throughout Tommyland were spewed forth by a prominent erm member of Tommy's inner circle, namely his penis, a.k.a. Dick. Thankfully, said individual added his takes on the text while I was not present. Thanks for splooging that in there, Anthony. (laughs) I like it as much as I like come, which is to say, not at all. <laughs> it's just messy and disruptive and ruins anything that could have been good. The sex was fun until Anthony came on it. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's not you. It's them. It's them. We would have never. I would never say anything like that. So then we get into chapter two, the state of seduction, a.k.a. Dr. Lee's love tips. And I guess I'll just read the note from the Simon & Schuster guy who's like, you know, read a book before and knows how books go. He says, Tommy, we've discussed this before and I maintain that this chapter is way out of place. We're just getting started and this is really jarring. You need to replace this chapter with the next one, State of Origin. So before he tells you about his upbringing or his parents or being born or anything, he's just giving you sex tips and pickup tips and how to treat a woman tips. And he's like, I never meet women anywhere normal, so maybe you should take my advice. I've met just about every woman I've ever been with in a club, but that's because I don't go anywhere during the day. Hey, maybe that's my problem. I never meet women I date in the normal places like supermarkets or bookstores or kids' soccer games. That's not where people meet. It's so hard in this chapter to tell if he likes or hates women. (laughs) Yeah, he like really walks the line. So he opens up and he goes, Dr. Lee has learned a few things about sex and love over the years. And here's the first. Big girls are the hottest, craziest fucks ever. I'm talking about big girls and I don't mean tall. I don't know if that's body positive or like. Yeah, especially because he's only ever married 90 pound women. women. Yeah, but it's just somebody's like big girls need love too. So be there for them, bros. And be prepared for them to go fucking nuts on you. I hate dudes who hate on big girls. Before that, even, he says, where do most people prowl? Clubs or bars? Trust me, if you're digging for treasure in a dumpster, you might find some, but you're going to get pretty fucking dirty rooting through all that trash. I mean, that's a mean thing to say. Yeah, Uh but then in this paragraph, he goes, she's a girl, dude. I'm proud to say that this doctor does not discriminate. The girls in my life have come in all shapes and sizes. Diversity. That's what the doctor ordered. Then he explains that threesomes are actually really bad. And what you're actually looking for is a foursome. And now that he's experienced a foursome, he will never, ever, ever go back to a threesome. And then he gets into how important flowers are and that he personally loves the smell of gardenias. 
And he says, the doctor doesn't believe in gender specific sense and neither should you. You are allowed to smell like a flower. If you are a man, don't worry. Then he explains that all men are being disrespectful if they don't trim their nads. Keep the pubes in control. Shave the hair off your arms, but you can leave the legs alone. If you're all scared, feeling like hair removal ain't macho, look at that pair of high heels you like your girlfriend to wear. You think that's easy? Walk a mile in her shoes, dude. Fuck it. Walk down a flight of stairs in her shoes, then you'll realize that the least you can do is keep your unit trim. He has this really interesting... uh, feminism where (laughs) women are sex objects but they're objects that you should carefully hold (laughs) unless you're going to jail for beating your object god okay so then he he talks about how important it is to go down on your lady which that's true men who are listening reciprocity or not reciprocity do more anyway (laughs) then he calls a woman's clit a gummy bear He said, my favorite thing to do when I'm in the Southland is to pull my girl's lips all the way back so that her little gummy bear just pops out at me. Dude, I love gummy bears. I honestly regret not putting a trigger warning at the beginning of this sentence. I'm sorry for everyone I've harmed. I mean, I will say that if you're listening to this in the car with children and you saw that we were doing Tommy Lee's book this week and you didn't turn it off, that's on you. So then he's like talking about how to please your lady And he's like, if you're in a bathtub and you have one of those spray attachments, use it. Ladies ladies like it, please believe. A lot of girls masturbate by setting up under the faucet. And then he says this thing, which I don't agree with at all. If you don't have a tub, use the shower. And if you're in a pinch and you don't have a shower, it's okay. Urine works too. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. She can play fireman while you play the hose. Listen. No, that's not true. I'm not here to kink shame anybody. But I do think if you think that a shower head... And peeing on someone's vagina are like on the same ladder. (laughs) That is not a reasonable replacement. (laughs) Truly not in any sense of the word. That is not like an Amazon. If you like this, then you'll also like that. Like you cannot make the assumption that that'll like work in a pinch. There is simply nothing parallel about it. It is not even apples and oranges. It's like apples and helicopters. (laughs) And some people love helicopters, but you can't assume they like helicopters because they like oranges. Then he explains the types of women he's been with and the kind of girl he wants to date next. And he says he wants someone so low-key, so low-drama. He says, I've overdosed on it too many times, the drama. I don't want a famous girl anymore. I just want a normal girl with a job, please. It would be great if I could get involved with a chick who doesn't even know who I am. I wonder how long after he wrote this, he met Brittany Furlan. I guess like 10 years. That's his current wife, by the way. She's a Vine star. He says his dream girl is a nymphomaniac who owns a liquor store. Listen, no judgment, but I just think if what you don't want is drama, a nymphomaniac who owns her liquor store might not be the girl for you. She might not not be drama. Anyway, I hope you guys learned a thing or two from Dr. Lee's love tips. Next, we have the state of origin. So this is where he explains where he came from, which is Greece. His dad was stationed in Greece with the army. His mom was beautiful. Miss Grace, 1957. They like met once at a baptism. Neither of them spoke a word of each other's language. After he saw her once, he went and asked her dad's permission to marry her. And they got married in Greece where Tommy was born. His mom did not speak a word of English when they met or when they got married. He says that they would communicate by drawing pictures for each other. It's hard enough to make a relationship work when you speak the language. What they had was love. And it is so interesting to me. He brings this up a couple of times, the way that he feels his parents had the purest love of all time because they met and fell in love without being able to communicate a word to each other. And to me, I don't know if that screams love as much as it does 
opportunity for both of them. Like he wanted a beautiful wife and she thought moving to America was like a good call. But growing up, he would go back to Greece every summer. He has a little sister named Athena. So that's how you know they really are Greek. (laughs) Yeah. Growing up, he was always really into the drums. His dad was a super strict military guy, but his story reminded me a lot of Travis Barker's and that his parents were so supportive of him. They obviously weren't into the fact that he was like tattooed and piercing and kind of like a little weirdo. But they were really supportive. They turned the garage into a practice space for him. He wasn't that popular in high school. He says he got bullied a lot in band. He was like in marching band and the other people in marching band bullied him. He wasn't great at school, but the music teacher let him fuck around whenever he wanted to. He says his parents, he said, they supported my interests, but they were strict about it too. They wouldn't let me get out of practicing whatever instrument I wanted to learn. Piano was the worst. So I do think his parents were like, okay, if this is the thing that you want to be your thing, we'll support it, but you have to do it. Yeah. Which I respect a lot. This is such a side note, but I want to pull it up because I think it begins an interesting trend with him of he has such a skewed perspective on how everything went down and he's such an unreliable narrator. And he himself doesn't say anything bad about any of his exes, but he allows other people to say like horrific things. Yeah. So he goes back and meets up with his high school music teacher. And the first thing that Mr. D says is, so Tommy, what the fuck happened to Heather? I can't believe it, man. I see her at the Lakers games and I think, what the fuck did you do, man? The other one I could understand. She's bad news. But that one, Tommy, I don't know. To like let your high school music teacher disrespect the mother of your children that way. You didn't need to leave that line in. Do you think Pamela Anderson is worse than Tommy Lee? Yeah. She was bad news and not him. Nothing is ever his fault. He talks a little bit about his high school days and how he didn't really feel bothered by the fact that he got bullied pretty relentlessly. By the way, I want to check bullied pretty relentlessly. He has two stories of somebody like roughing him up and it was never his fault. He's always sitting there perfectly still just doing his best to be so good at drums and some guy will pick on him. Of course. I mean, nothing's ever his fault. He's just a good boy who gets into bad situations. A couple times he got into skirmishes, probably because he was a dick. Yeah, he seems like a real troublemaker. So he says, I knew that one day I was going to do something really big. I didn't know what it would be, but I knew what was coming would be something else. That made me laugh because I was like, man, he like knew he was skater boy. He is in bands all through high school. When he is a senior, he starts a band with Nikki Six called Motley Crue. Ever heard of it? They meet Mick Mars through a newspaper ad. Mick Mars had placed an ad in the paper that he was looking for a band, loud, rude, aggressive guitar player, no bullshit, call Mick. And then they had Vince Neil audition. They knew him from another high school and he ended up as their front man. He says, when we got the crew together, I knew it was on. I was a totally fucking insane 17 year old maniac drummer and I was not going to be stopped. We played the circuit and got a devoted fan base real quick and we earned it, which, okay. He says they sold out the whiskey go-go for three nights. This I get like this line. I kind of liked, he says, At the time, selling out the Whiskey Go-Go for three nights was the shit. I was so green that I thought we had made it and had no idea it could get bigger than that. I also like that line. And I think part of our problem is that the live performing aspect of this so relates to how we feel about comedy. You know, I mean, just have like a full room in a small bar is like the height of your excitement. And so I get that. Just to meet people in real life who like what you do is just like, oh my God, what could be better than that? And it doesn't matter if it's 10 people in a closet, but if it's packed and there was energy, you're like, I did it. I'm a God. I made it. I'm electric. And I do think we're both suckers for having fun with your friends. I know. And I feel like one of the things that snapped me out of this book is I think I know enough about Motley Crue that the things he explains about their like brotherhood, but then he doesn't mention certain pivotal moments in the other band members' history that I'm like, it wasn't a brotherhood at all. You only care about yourself, bitch. When they are 
seniors in high school, they get picked up by a record label, some like tiny little local record label, but it's enough to make him want to be like, we're going to go on tour. We're going to make this happen. He had six weeks left in his high school and his parents were like, you really can't just finish high school. And I agree. I think the tour could have been postponed by six weeks. Yeah. Or even was it an on the road every weekend tour? Like, was there no way for him to finish up just the schoolwork? Who even goes senior year? Like you can just make a deal with your principal and be like, hey, if I just turn in an essay, can I graduate? Yeah, but he was so sure he wouldn't need a high school diploma. And I guess, I mean, he was right. So something interesting about this book is it doesn't focus on the music at all. So that's kind of the last we get of this period of his life. I guess they go on tour and things go good. So next he gets into his marriages, state of matrimony. So he did get married young for a month. He married a woman named Candace, who was the perfect wife for me then. She partied as hard as I did. She hung out with the guys and she always looked good. They were married for a month. For 30 days. And he says, the easiest way to sum up why we were together, one, I was 19, two, she was hot. Then she was mean to his mom and he was like, all right, never mind. (laughs) Yeah, apparently she called his mom the C word and wouldn't stop. And so I kicked Candace to the curb like yesterday's trash. Yikes. And I just have to say like, dude, were you a dream husband? I know. He never once takes responsibility or cops to anything he's ever done wrong in his life. I will say this relationship, I'm like, whatever. No, it's like whatever. But the idea that... He's like, she was mean to my mom. And I love my mom. I'm a good guy. Whenever he acts out, he's always like, I had to stand by what was right. And my father would act the same way. I had to defend my mom. And I was like, how good were you to Candace? I can't imagine you were great. Yeah. You're calling her yesterday's trash. So then he just says, by now I was 23 and Motley Crue already had multi-platinum hit albums with Shout at the Devil in 1983 and Theater of Pain in 1985. We toured the world two times over, committed what some would call sins and others call fun. I mean, okay. He like takes a lot of responsibility for scaring parents and teaching the youth of America how to be rock and roll. And it's like, I mean, sure. I think you did inspire some kids to act out, but relax. And then he sees Heather Locklear on TV and he finds out that his friend's brother is her dentist. So he gets her phone number. And he calls her and confuses her for someone else. So he calls her and he's like, I'm Tommy Lee. I want to take you out. I'm watching you on TV right now. And she's like, oh, well, it's seven o'clock and Heather Thomas is on TV right now. And he was like, oh, well, I'm... You know, (laughs) I think you're pretty. (laughs) And so they end up going out. He's persistent. This comes across quite a bit. He's a persistent fella. He says, our conversation must have been either spicy enough or Heather was curious enough to agree to a date because a day or so later, there I was at her house to pick her up. I stood there in the entrance to her house with her sister waiting for Heather to come down the stairs. And when she did, only one word came to mind. Whoa. And he is just like absolutely blown away by how pretty she is. I mean, same. They just get together like a normal couple. They're married within a year, I think. Heather and I were married on May 10th, 1986, and it was the whole deal. 500 guests, massive cake, press coverage, a serious photo session, Doves, a skydiver who delivered a magnum of Cristal, and then my favorite part, we jetted off to Fiji. This is the first time in his life that he is tabloid fodder. I mean, I think we see this with pretty much everyone. When your life is going well, it's annoying, but not that big of a deal. When your life is going bad, it's bad. But I also feel like he puts the tabloid fodder on the wives a lot. And yes, I do believe that teaming up with Heather Locklear, teaming up with Pam Anderson does bring intrigue into your life. But having things like a skydiver deliver you a magnum of crystal, he does live this outlandish life that is perfect for tabloids. Right. Like, I had never heard of the other people in his band until I read this book. I do feel like had he not been in these sensational relationships, he wouldn't have been tabloid fodder. Like, it takes a certain type of person to pursue literally the hottest woman in the world. I mean, like, imagine right now dating Bella Hadid and being like, I didn't want the tabloids involved. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's stupid. I mean, that's kind of what The weekend does. The weekend is like... 
you know, I dated Bella Hadid for how many years, but Hollywood sucks and everyone's fake and plastic surgery is dumb. And you're like, okay. Or like, um, no, I think like a better comparison right now is imagine if Pete Davidson was like, I didn't like the tabloid. Like I hated that being involved with these women involved paparazzi. And it's like, okay, Pete. But like that, I think that's the exact Peter, comparison because these were the two hottest women of their day. And I so agree. Then, you know what I mean? Like it is a certain person who does it not once, but twice. I know. And Heather Locklear, he says, was literally starring in two of the biggest shows during that time. And then he does these once. outlandish things. Like not to get ahead of myself, but he's like, God, I'll be wanted with some private time, me and Pam. And I can't believe the paparazzi found us at the Viper Room. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, man. You had a one-month-old baby. You couldn't think of anything better to do and more private than go to the Viper Room. Like, I get wanting a night out, but that is a public night out. Yeah. He talks about learning compromise, but he doesn't really learn it. He just, like, learns the word compromise. He talks about catching a nine-foot fish and having it taxidermied and shipped to his house and he's like I'm gonna hang it up behind the bar and Heather Locklear's like I don't want a nine foot fish behind my bar and he was like man being married is hard but overall he says it was a great marriage and he loved her a lot they were together for seven years we did get divorced in 1993 though both of our careers were at their height during our marriage we talked about having kids a lot which is something that I'd always wanted but she wasn't really feeling bad I love kids and when Nikki Six and his first wife Brandy Brandt had them I wanted them more than ever I'd be at their house crawling on the floor with the kids for hours when I truly saw that Heather and I weren't going to have children, I started to lose interest in the relationship. And all I can say is that as soon as that started to happen, I didn't know what to do. I started wandering emotionally. And after that, my eyes started to window shop and my dick started to talk. He, a couple of times throughout this book, really hypes up his monogamy skills. He's like, I'm a great monogamist. You can ask anyone, except for as soon as I emotionally check out from a relationship, I will fuck anyone. And so he realizes that he and Heather are not going to have kids. He insists that he was faithful the entire time they were married, except for when he decided, I guess, emotionally that they were no longer married. Because then he immediately goes to visit his good pal, Ron Jeremy, on a shoot. He's in the bathroom. A porn star walks in, sucks his dick, and leaves. And he's like, all right, that was sick as hell. Everyone finds out right away. The day of, Heather calls. She goes, did you fuck some porno girl? Uh-oh, I'm fucked. I'm a really bad liar, but I try my best anyway. I say, what are you talking about? Heather saw right through that shit. Anyone could have. She's all cool, calm, and collected. And she says, I don't fucking believe you. You're a liar. This is fucked. Click, dial tone, divorce. I know he thinks that they were like happy as can be. Happy little clams married in a little clam house. But I do think that if he was this quick to just go hook up with a porn star and she was this quick to pull the divorce lever, there were things happening. I feel like this book almost reminds me of Jessica Simpson's and that everything is like the after school special version of what I think happened. I do think that this is like the ramblings of a narcissist. Yeah. He like lives life with Tommy Lee colored glasses and I don't think he thinks he's ever done anything wrong in his life. I agree with that. The things he just states no problem. He says he invented tattoos. <laughs> he just says that. He says he invented the idea of rock stars being heavily tattooed, which obviously is insane. And even his co-writer, Anthony Baza, calls it out and is like, that's not true. There was one band in Australia who had tattoos. Anthony Baza fact checks in throughout the book and a lot of his memories are just wrong. That's true. They're just like, yeah, whatever. He has that much confidence that he's like, I'm going to write my memoir where in the book blatantly, I'm going to just never fact check myself until after. And I'm still going to ask you to believe everything I say. So the next chapter is state of total disregard, AKA, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck it. Fuck the man. Fuck everybody. Fuck it is right. I've always felt that way about life, about dares, about doing what I was told not to. But after it was clear that Heather and I were getting divorced, my motto was fuck it with a capital F. I didn't give a flying fuck about shit. That period of my life lasted, I'd say from the day that blowjob blew up my home life until we finally signed the divorce papers. And then the rest of that chapter is just a story of a time he called a girl who does porn over and like she 
gave all of his friends head. Yeah. I have this theory about Tommy Lee that he really does believe that he treats people well, but that there's only about 10 people on earth. I think he sees a lot of humans as not people. My theory is that he thinks he treats people well. He just doesn't ask anyone anything. Like if he walks away from an experience thinking it was a positive experience, he's like, we all had a good time. He like does not care about the value of a human life. And I believe that deeply in my heart. I see it. So then we get to stay to the crew, his only chapter about Motley Crew, And I really feel like he was like not even there. He glazes over the drugs. And I think that that means he like just doesn't remember a single thing that happened. And he does say his memory is shoddy because he did so many drugs. But my God, the things he leaves out. The thing about this book is one time he mentions very casually and like an offhanded comment about how when they were at their height rocking, he would have a roadie just bring him a cap full of cocaine in the middle of a set and it didn't matter. And they were doing heroin all the time. Who cares? And then drugs never come up again. So he's telling you these stories about their lives and about his relationships and stuff. And you're always like, why is everything always like the worst case scenario? Like, why are people always acting crazy? And it's because they're all on drugs the whole time. He's like coked out on heroin the entire time, but he never mentions it. That never factors into anything. So at one point he says, we'd shoot up cocaine and heroin on stage if we wanted. And we'd shoot Jack Daniels or Jin to come down after the show. It was ridiculous. Thank God we're alive. Yeah. And then he talks about the Dr. Feelgood album and tour where he says, Dr. Feelgood was where we really hit our stride. It rocked like fuck. It had melody and pop because you couldn't forget. All of us were clean and sober while we recorded after I led the charge for each of us to enter rehab and it shows. Okay. So I want to say between those tours, the theater of pain tour where he was doing heroin on stage and the Dr. Feelgood tour where they were totally clean, Nikki Six overdosed on heroin and was legally dead for two minutes. So Ashley actually read Nikki Six, who is another member of this band. She read his memoir, which is literally called The Heroin Diaries. And it was about how his entire life was like ravaged by by heroin. So his book is a book about heroin and how he like climbed out of addiction. Whereas in Tommy Lee's book, it's mentioned like six times. It is crazy how little he talks about it. And this whole thing of like, I led the charge to get us into rehab. So he also talks about like the brotherhood of being in a band, how these people were his brothers. He does kind of hate Vince Neil, which I get because he's a sociopath. But I think that to say that he led the charge to go to rehab, we're the Tommy and Nikki Six of Celebrity Memoir Book Club. If you died for a couple of minutes, and they, it also like went out on the radio. Like they, the band had been told he's dead and they thought he was dead to just be like, anyway, I got us into rehab. We were all good on the next one. Like what the, the fuck? Thing is, like the rehab doesn't even take, I don't know if he considers himself an addict or if he does have like addiction issues. He like uses a lot, but I think that that's different. He goes in and out of using and it means nothing. It means nothing. There is a 2018 letter from Pamela Anderson that heavily references what it's like to be in love with an alcoholic and someone who struggles with addiction so deeply. And so the fact that it's barely a factor in this book is bananas. And we're going to talk more about Pamela and Tommy. We're going to watch Pam and Tommy, the Hulu thing, and talk more about their relationship on the Patreon. But in here, we're just going to talk about what's in the book for the most part. Yeah, like even Anthony Kiedis, who... I don't like, like, I've never read a book, and we've read a lot of these books at this point, have drugs be such a big part of their life and not even mention what it was like to try to get off of it, to get on it. I mean, think about how many times Anthony Kiedis described copying drugs. Yeah. For him to act like doing drugs wasn't a big part of his life, for him to not mention it is like leaving out so much. I shot heroin and drank Jack Daniels like the world was ending tomorrow, and none of us for a while there would have cared if we were the biggest band in the world or died the next day. And then one page later, he says, we did it right. And I dare anyone to say we didn't. We rocked harder and we looked better than anyone out there. 
I mean, if you read Nikki's book, it's a completely different story. I think we're going to maybe eventually have to cover it. It is so wild how hard these stories differ. Like his book is about how he was a depleted mess of a person. He was like shuttled out there like weekend at Bernie's. He's like, I was truly like a skeleton in a leather coat just being trotted out to barely play. And Tommy Lee is sitting over here being like, we were brothers and we had the best time. (laughs) Anyway, he also talks about the contraptions he would drum in. He said he had giant drum sets. He was obsessed with spectacles. He had a giant drum kit that he was strapped into that spun full 360s, like a gyroscope at the front of the stage. He talks about all the crazy tricks he pulled. He did at one point a disappearing drum kit. He says, my dream is to build a true roller coaster where my drums roll on a track to the back of the arena and do a loop in each direction. Essentially, this chapter is about how like he is a showman. And I think he's just like a very okay drummer. I think this explains why his solo work where he was really just performing music kind of sucked because what he's good at is spectacles. And then he gets John Karabi, who was only the lead singer of the band for one year. Vince Neil leaves. They kick him out because they don't think he's being serious about the band. He's had more legal troubles than any of them, which is kind of hard to believe. But Because, <laughs> I mean, Tommy gets sued every day of his life. Another thing that I feel like is important and is not mentioned in this book is that Vince Neil killed someone. He was drunk driving and killed somebody. And that's just, like, not even in the book. And I was like, oh, that's when John Karabi came in to be the lead singer. And Ashley was like, no, <laughs> that wasn't the problem. <laughs> that was, like nine years later. Anyways, he has John Karabi come in. Again, I feel like what Tommy says isn't true, but they're very careful about never letting him be painted in a bad light and he never says anything too out of pocket. But then John Karabi comes on and tells this story. He goes, one night this chick came up to me backstage so I took her to the bus and fucked her. We're just about done when all of a sudden our security guard comes back to the lounge of the bus and tells me that she's got to go now. Her husband was at the door of the bus and was pissed. I come out of the lounge tucking my dick in my pants and I see this guy through the windshield and he's steaming. His lady gets her clothes on and as soon as she steps out of the bus, without a word, her husband decks her. Just like that. All I could think was, welcome to the world of Motley Crue. So that's a crazy story that I do think like the difference between Tommy Lee and this guy is the Simon and Schuster people were saying, do not incriminate yourself like that. Don't talk about a time that you watched a woman get hit in the face and all you said was welcome to our world and here's why I really want to say one page later he's talking about they incited two riots I guess and one was in Charlotte 1997 during the show we noticed that this one black security guard was punching a girl in the face in the front row I mean not great obviously no woman should be punched in the face Nikki decided to stop the show and call that motherfucker out he said anybody who hits a girl is an n-word uh-oh here we go it was on and then they all start fighting the security guard I hopped over the drums and got my boys back because shit was about to get ugly. It was a couple days later, we were served with a lawsuit. We spent a lot of money to make it go away. The fact that those two stories could be two pages apart is insane to me. You're only allowed to hit women if you're white. (laughs) Like the way that he is able to go from one page from laughing at a woman getting beat up to at the very next page using protecting a woman as an excuse for being racist is... Like, horrific. Then he goes on to talk about how much Vince Neil sucks. The more money and fame we got, the worse he was to anyone and everyone. He yelled at everybody, and I never dug that. I think a lot of the reason there's a lot of holes in this book in terms of the music and the band itself is because there is an autobiography of Motley Crue that I guess they all wrote together that gets into, like, some of the dirtiest, most fucked up stuff they ever did. And I do have to say, I think it's one of the least rock and roll things I've ever heard to sit down and, like, write a book bragging about all the crazy shit you did. You have no idea how cool our lives are! 
The way that he's constantly like, we did it better. Everything we did, we did the best. No one's ever been more rock and roll than us. And it's like, okay, how's your Hollywood mansion and your Vine star girlfriend treating you? There's nothing less rock and roll than that. Sorry. I think writing two books is... some pansy shit and like no offense to Brittany Furlan like the, this is not even a dig at her I just think that to marry an internet star and, and then start doing have sketches. a palace and like make TikTok videos with your wife that is not rock and roll he lost it quick I mean the dream is to die unsuccessful so no one can ever say you weren't cool yeah anyway so he hates Vince Neil and then he like tries to leave their tour because he doesn't want to work with him. And then he ends up just staying on the tour anyway. And he says that he felt so on rock and roll faking it because even though I didn't want to be there, the show must go on. The fans had no clue, but I felt like a fucking whore up there every night. And I counted down the shows until it was over. He says, thanks. The music, the money, the MTV, the cars, the mansions, the fame, the fortune, the tit, the ass, the drugs, the drama, the crabs, the roaches, the poverty, the pillage, the whatever. He just like goes on and on about how Motley Crue was an amazing experience. And it's just like, yeah, dude. Of course it was. That's why you're famous. Of course you should be grateful for Molly Crew. Like what we don't know you from your solo work. We'll get into that later, but it's it's not good. So now we're about to get to the Pamela chapters. But before the Pamela chapters, I do want to make mention of this one chapter called State of Lawlessness, aka the Code of the Road, which I am realizing now is an entire chapter of him being a narc ass bitch talking about how he's perfect and everybody else is the problem. I just want you to see how four-year-old boy who just ate all the cookies and then quietly blames his little sister he is like that's his personality of like i don't know what what happened i was just scared you know what i mean i could never relate to the dudes who are married and who are doing all kinds of messed up stuff on the road they didn't seem to think so but it messes with your mind and it sure as hell messes with your relationship he talks about how hard it is for him when all of his friends are cheating on their wives because he says your morals are at stake on one hand and your professional relationships are at stake on the other Aside from the music, a successful band is a business that keeps its members paid and no one wants to mess up their livelihood. I'm sorry, Tommy, that being a rock star was so hard on you. Just seconds ago, you were so excited about how easy it was to do drugs on stage. And now you're like, but no one was faithful. Yeah. And he talks about one time he like breaks his sobriety and drinks with Vince and they get drunk in a strip club. And then the next day he comes clean and Vince doesn't. He's like, I was such a good guy. Vince wasn't. And then he tells a story about one of his bandmates who was married but would have girls on the road that were his girlfriends. He would propose to. And then he would have to call it off and they would come in crying backstage and be like, I don't know why you called it off. And they'd be like, we couldn't tell the poor girl that it's because he was married. And I was just like, God, yeah, Tommy Lee, the saint of rock and roll, the only person with any morals. Thank goodness for Tommy Lee. Without them, Motley Crue would have been absolutely debaucherous. <laughs> God, I wonder what he did to fill the time instead of cheating. Maybe he was playing June's Journey. Listen, I know you guys love a good mystery. Whether it is the mystery of why celebrities do certain things or who done it. June's Journey is a glamorous, roaring 20s era mystery. You can unlock your inner Sherlock, search for hidden clues, solve mystery after mystery across thousands of scenes and there are new chapters added every single week claire and i have been playing it we are absolutely addicted you know how much we love to look at our phones you know how addicted we are to social media june's journey honestly takes me out of it because i'm like i have to get through this mystery i have to figure out what happens next it is a really fun thing to do to just wind down to play while you're waiting for the train there are so many fun times to just pull it out solve a mystery you can find your inner detective when you download june's journey free today at the apple app store or google Google Play. 
You know, who would have loved June's journey? Tell me. Pamela Anderson. I think it would have been a great way to decompress after all of the divorcing. I'm going to DM her to download it. So let's get into the Pamela years. So this is where he admits to us that he has a terrible memory. He says, I'm not sure if I've always had a terrible memory because I can't remember, but I do remember that I have a bad one now. So he introduces his ex-wife, Pamela Anderson, to help him retell their story. It's shocking how much of it he gets wrong. So we're going to read back and forth how they met. We're going to summarize that. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but Claire is going to be Pamela. I'm going to be Tommy. They met New Year's Eve 1994 at this club called Sanctuary that she partly owned. Tommy says, I was not at all in a meeting you mode. I was single and recently divorced from Heather Locklear. So Tommy is at this club for New Year's Eve and Pamela sent him a shot of Goldschlager and he was like, whoa, right on. I asked the waitress if Pamela was at the club and she pointed out where she was sitting across the room, drinking it up with a bunch of her girlfriends and no dudes at the table. I grab my bottle of Cristal, slam the shot, and I go over and sit right next to her. I don't say hello. I don't say a word. I just lick the side of her face like a fucking big dog. She's like, oh my God. And her friends are freaking out, just shaking their heads, saying to her, no, 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 no. They're not happy at all when I bite an E into and put half in her mouth. Pamela comes in and goes, Tommy thought he was the only one I sent the shot to. I had sent Goldschlager's to everybody in the whole club, not just him. And then she goes, I had not tried ecstasy before, and he did not give me any that night. All of Tommy's crazy friends were doing it, though. He's like, no, whatever, you did do it. She does agree that he sat down, licked her face, and that none of her friends liked him, and that he kept screaming, I'm Greek, so we break things when we're happy, and he just kept breaking stuff that she had to pay for because it was her club. Yeah, he, like, chucked his shot glass across the room. He kept on just shattering glass, which is annoying at best, dangerous at worst. Then he says they hung out all night. He walked her to her car at like 2 a.m. She says, I think I'd better go. I'm like, oh my God, no, no way. Please don't go. And she was going to Cancun the next day. Pamela says, I was not going to Cancun the next day. He's confused again. He followed me to Cancun a month later. I also didn't stay until two in the morning either like he thinks I did. And I think Tommy is forgetting something else. He hadn't just broken up with Heather Locklear and he wasn't single. He was going out with someone named Bobby Brown at the time and she was at the club with him that night circling our table the entire time. Also, according to Wikipedia, he was engaged to Bobby Brown. So that's important, I think. I mean, but this is what we're talking about. Like, that's different than dating somebody. Yeah. Which is different than him saying I was single. Like, I guess in Tommy's mind, he's never done anything wrong and he's just out and out lying. It's not even like a difference of opinions. It's just blatant lying. He knew that all of Pam's friends hated his guts. Her best friend, Melanie, said, Pamela, he's fucking trouble. You are not going anywhere with him. But he still got Pam's number. I like can't believe how hot the name Pamela is when you're talking about Pamela Anderson. He insists they went to Cancun pretty much immediately. Pamela goes, like I said, he's confused. And then she talks about how she had heard about Tommy and she knew his deal and she just thought, ew. After I left the club that night, I went back to Hotel Nico. I had told Tommy that I was there under my own name. And Melanie was like, no, 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 he's trouble. Tommy did start calling immediately. He's got that right. He called and called, leaving about 20 messages, just drunk dialing. One of them was him singing his version of the Oscar Mayer theme song. My baloney has a first name. It's L-A-R-G-E. My baloney has a second name. It's P-E-N-I-S. I like to use it every day. And if you ask me why, I'll say, because my large penis has a way with P-U-S-S-S-Y today. Ew. She goes, actually, that was the message that got me interested. Pam, as they say on Twitter, you could not have waterboarded that out of me. <laughs> what a thing to admit. I just don't know how you continue to fight a custody battle after admitting publicly that that's the message <laughs> that made you interested. Anyway, so he keeps calling. Eventually, she calls back and says, okay, I'll spend 24 hours with you. And that is it. She almost chickens out a bunch, but he won't stop calling. She says he was being psychotic and a little scary. So he's constantly calling her for this month, nonstop, and it's scary. And one of the times that he's calling her, she picks up by accident. 
And this is actually the time that she's on her way to Cancun. So she picks up the phone. He's like, where are you going? Can we hang out right now? She's like, I can't. I'm going to Cancun. She says, don't come to Cancun. Whatever you do, don't. And he takes that as like, oh, she's inviting me to Cancun. So he gets to Cancun and starts calling her immediately. I left so many messages on her Cancun hotel that she is either too scared to answer her phone or pretty fucking confident that I'm so insane that I will find her no matter where she is. I do find her hotel, of course, and I leave a message and start waiting. She tells security like not to let anyone that looks like him around and thinks he's crazy. But then finally, like the last night she was there, I had brought a few friends with me. And on the last night in Cancun, we were out to dinner with the client and the guys were so boring that I was falling asleep at the dinner table. I tell my girlfriends we should meet Tommy and his friends for a drink because nothing could happen. We were leaving the next day. We ditched those guys and went back to the hotel. I left Tommy a message and within five minutes he called me back. So they try to go to the Ritz-Carlton. Tommy is underdressed. They end up somewhere goofy like Senor Frog or something like that. They say they go to a massive club. All night his friends are breaking E into her drinks and she doesn't know that. That first night at La Boom we were drinking champagne and I didn't know it. But one of Tommy's friends was bringing capsules of ecstasy into my drinks. I had never done any drugs before, so I didn't really know what was happening. I was always against drugs and really, really strict, like miss put you in rehab if it seemed like someone had a problem at all. Tommy and I locked eyes. It was one of those romantic things like love at first sight. It might have been the chemicals, but when he looked at me and said, I've never felt like this before. I want to marry you. I said, I've never felt like this before either. I want to marry you. That's ecstasy. That's what that does. Yeah. Anyway, so they spend four days partying in Cancun and then they get married. We stayed together for four days and we didn't have sex until we were married, even though Tommy thinks we did. We'd party nonstop. I just thought we were madly in love. I had no idea that there were chemicals keeping me awake. I was taking baths all day long because my skin had never tingled so much. I was rubbing myself. I was rubbing him. We should have been two piles of dust. We were rubbing each other so much. I could feel my nerve endings and every bump on my skin. I just thought that I was really in love. I definitely thought we had to get married. It was so intense and there was no way we could have sex right away. It took us a few days to even get there. We were too busy sucking every single hair and freckle on each other's bodies. I'm glad we waited until marriage, until it was proper in the eyes of the Lord. That's so funny to be like, we were sucking each other's bodies like crazy. Anyway, save yourself for Jesus. I mean, I think that that's the joke. I think Pam's in on that one. Pam's funny. Anyway, Tommy's dick weighs in and says, we definitely had sex. And then Tommy says, no, I'm with you. We totally did. Also, I feel like this is like a four-day thing they're arguing about. Yeah, what's the difference at some point? I know eventually they did. I've seen the tape. Don't worry, Tommy Lee. We all know you fucked Pam Anderson. You have (laughs) two children and a sex tape. (laughs) They got married in Mexico. They had to look everywhere for a priest because they were all off on Sundays. Priests don't work on Sundays. I thought that was when they worked the most. And she claims that Tommy Lee was so upset that they couldn't find a priest that he started to cry. That's so funny. And I believe it so much. Oh, me too. And Tommy writes, what? No, I didn't. Are you just puffing up your chest, babe? Isn't it already puffed up enough? And that right there makes me want to kill him. I know. He's such a fucking asshole. This is the mother of your children you're making fun of. They got married on the beach. Then they had to call their friends. Pamela called her best friend, Melanie. And Melanie cried, which I relate to. All of their family and friends were just sad that they weren't there for the most part, except Melanie, who was sad that Pamela married Tommy. Yeah, Tommy's parents were just like, oh, we're sad we weren't there, but good for you. But Pamela's parents were like, you had a life to live. (laughs) Then they have this moment of flying back to America where they're getting to know each other, which reminds me a lot of The Bachelor. They have that moment where literally they're like, what is your last name? Pamela didn't know what Tommy's real last name was. And something that weirds me out is they keep saying, no, it really is Lee. And I'm like, is it though? Because it wasn't at first. I guess maybe he changed it. When they land, there's a paparazzi frenzy waiting for them. And this is his 
step into an absolute paparazzi tornado. Honestly, the rest of their relationship is them swimming through a sea of paparazzi. So they have this first perfect year. Well, they have the first good year where they both are like, this was the happiest I had ever been in my life. They both insist that they were insanely in love. He had just bought a house in Malibu and they decided to renovate it. They called it the Love Palace. Pamela says the house must have been built over an Indian burial ground because it's got a good vibe, but everything we ever tried to do with it went wrong. One of the examples they give of like how fun and outlandish their life was, was he says that very first year for my 30th birthday, she threw me the raddest party in the history of partying. And Pamela goes, it was your 33rd birthday. Hello, ground control to Major Tommy. You were 32 and I was 27 when we got married, which was like the day they met. So I feel like a 30th birthday and a 33rd birthday. Like, I guess I do see how because he was on so many drugs, he was just losing years. But he never he never mentions the drugs. So they describe this insane birthday party she threw him. It was Tommy Land. It was like a carnival style. They had a lot of debauchery. And Pamela says, it's crazy. I can still pick out 100 Christmas gifts for Tommy before I can figure out what to buy anyone else. When you're really in sync with someone, it never goes away. It's great, but it makes it really hard to be with someone else. You just don't have the same interests and don't understand each other the same way. And they do maintain this throughout the entire book, that they had a love that was too much love to exist on this earth. In the first year they were together, they just kept getting married. Tommy would say he wanted to get married again during that first year we were together. He'd get the priest and I'd get the outfits. They described four other weddings they had. Where at one point, they did an alien-themed wedding. They did one at the house on Christmas Eve where Tommy was dressed in full armor and rode up to the house on a horse. He really is like a showman. He loves to make a show. And she loves a show. I mean, this carnival 30th birthday, 33rd birthday, that was a complete surprise. It was a full-on surprise party that he truly didn't see coming. And I think that that was where they met each other's match. She says the happiest time of my life was when I was married to Tommy, especially in the beginning. It's also interesting. This is not the only elaborate birthday party a girl throws for him. And he never describes a single thing that he's ever done for anyone else. Pamela and I were so in love, we couldn't wait to have kids. So after a year of honeymooning, we got right to it. I can't even explain what making love is like when you want a baby. So they have Brandon in June, the year after they get married. So 1996, I think. Yeah. And then they have Dylan a year later. She delivered both boys in her bathtub, naturally. He is entranced by the process. He says, you might think you know all about it, but nothing can prepare you for the moment a slimy head pops out of your wife's baby canal and looks around like some alien midget man that just landed on planet Earth. And then he talks about this like lame as shit sounding song that he wrote the minute Brandon was born, his oldest son. He ran down to the piano because the song just came out of him and he used the original recording of Brandon's heartbeat from the monitor as the tempo. And he's like, nobody liked it, but you just don't get love. I will say if I had just had a baby and my husband was like, I gotta go put this on the piano. I'd be like, fucking hold my hand, you dumb whore. I do think that that's the story of Tommy Lee is he just has no sense of what anyone else can need at any point. He's an artist. Here he is defending his sensitive side about being like, I'm allowed to write a song about the love I have for a son. And it's like, meanwhile, a truly sensitive person, an empath (laughs) would have been present to love his wife and his son. An empath would have recognized that his wife may have needed him at that moment of childbirth. God. And then he has a chapter about how much he loves his kids, but he doesn't want them to be spoiled, which is interesting compared to his recent 2018 Father's Day post where apparently he says, like, fuck my spoiled kids. He does, like, mention it a little bit. He talks about being worried that they're a little bit spoiled. He says that when he was younger, he would cherish his toys, which I fully don't believe. Kids are rambunctious and insane. But he says my kids, when they break something, they have no qualms about being like, all right, buy me a new one. So he started giving them an allowance and they could only spend money with their allowance. And then also he gives them money anytime he curses in front of them. Yeah, which with the amount of times he's cursed in front of us, I'm guessing it's a lot. Yeah. Now we've 
got the state of invasion, a.k.a. stop this ride. I want to get off. And even his editor says, this chapter runs way too long. I'd make it two chapters if I were you. And he says, well, Pippin, you're not me. Why don't you go make some tea and munch a crumpet? So he talks about the paparazzi and he says, I understand that it's part of the deal, but there is a line. And I do agree with that. So this chapter made me feel for him. Yeah. The first story they tell is at a time that Pamela had a miscarriage, which is heartbreaking. So she had to go to the hospital and she comes out and they're obviously emotionally and physically in pain. Well, not them. They're both emotionally in pain. Pamela's in physical pain. And they're being followed by paparazzi. So they just attack the fuck out of this car. They run the, the car off the road of the highway. Pamela starts bashing in their car with her front door and he gets out of the car and like stomps through their front windshield. Again, the paparazzi didn't know what they had just been through, but the fact that they were trying to chase down why they came out of a hospital crying is pretty sick. Obviously, they get served with a lawsuit. Pamela says it was a horrible day. All we wanted to do was go up to our house and be where we couldn't wait to live. The contractors weren't done working on it, but we didn't care. We just wanted to sit there with our dogs and think about what we'd just been through. I couldn't believe that we were being followed, and I just lost it. I mean, the thing is, all these stories are when he's in the right. I just have a hard time believing that if you went through every lawsuit he's ever been a part of or every altercation he's ever been a part of. I mean, exactly how before you were like, well, he was bullied mercilessly. Like, no, he was not. Yeah. This idea that every time he's ever punched somebody, it's been completely their fault. The next example is he's in Vegas with Pamela and she bends over to pick something up and some disgusting man is like, nice ass. And then Tommy beats him up and he's like, listen, I had to defend my wife. Like, what would you have done? And it's like, <laughs> God, yeah, sorry. I forgot that you're always the most noble person. Every time you've ever gotten out of control, it's because you're such a perfect guy. I mean, he, he specifically says, despite what the tabloids say, I don't feel like I've ever lost my temper just to lose it. There's always been a legitimate reason for my actions. But I think that the qualifying statement here is I don't feel like. I think that in his mind, that is 100% true. In his mind, he's always been justified in beating the shit out of someone. But that is obviously not true. That's so funny because in the fight with Pamela that gets the police called on him that we're about to get to in just a few pages, he literally cannot remember what they said to each other he knows they were making dinner and it was nothing that led to an all-out police calling war that led to him going to jail so for him to be like every time i've ever lost my temper there's been a really great reason i just can't remember why i had to beat my wife okay so here's the thing is this house in malibu that is secluded and beautiful he finds out as soon as they have children that the real problem with the seclusion is that it's next to state property. So he's like, it's great that I can never have neighbors. It'll always be quiet. And then he finds out that anyone can camp out on state property. So there are always paparazzi just like in his backyard waiting. And he can't get rid of them because it's state property. I would have moved. I mean, at some point you have to say, okay, I can't take it anymore. But I guess yeah. this all happened so quickly within two years. Another time he tells a story about a time he like threw a rock through some guy's car window, but he had asked his neighbors if it was any of their cars. And he goes, I'm glad I asked though, because every time I go in there, everyone who works there always tells me how considerate they thought I was. And then at the bottom, there's an asterisk. Indeed they do, as do most of Tommy's neighbors. Okay. Thanks, Anthony Boza, for checking with the neighbors. Then we hear about the Viper Room when their kid is just a month old. They need a night out, so they go to the Viper Room. And he throws a paparazzi down the street. Can I say he says the Viper Room set us up. They called the paparazzi and tipped them off that we were there. The Viper Room is like a public club and hotspot owned by Johnny Depp. I just think if you want to avoid paparazzi... That's not where you go. You don't go to the Chateau Marmont. You don't go to Sunset Tower. You don't go to the Viper Room. I don't know what they were expecting, but a paparazzi did get way up in their face. Pamela says she got maced in this situation. So it was escalated. Something horrible was going on. Tommy threw someone and they just kind of fell down a hill and ended up, I guess, breaking their pelvis or something. 
So they got sued pretty big time and Tommy ended up on parole, which is what set off the next series of events. I just realized that the second half of this chapter is the sex tape stealing. Your editor was right. This should have been a second chapter. Yeah. So then what happens is their house is under construction. And it's so under construction that they're not living there. They like permanently live in Pamela's condo. Yeah. And their safe gets stolen out of their under construction house. And he thought he was so smart. He had it hidden behind the wall. It was a 500 pound safe hidden behind the wall. It was a carpeted wall. And in front of that carpeted wall was his drum kit. So he's like, nobody could have known where it was except for the people who were working on the house because it was so heavy that he had had all the construction workers Help him hide it there. I mean, I will say, I do think that if I had a 500-pound safe installed, I would feel confident that it was going to stay there. I would instead say, if I'm going to hide all of my shit somewhere in the house, I wouldn't have the people who are there working alone, unsupervised, be the ones who know exactly where it is. People who are making very little money every day alone at my house at like a thankless job, be the ones who are told exactly where millions of dollars is being hidden. I guess in my mind, I would think that they would like steal things out of the safe. But the fact that the safe itself got stolen feels insane. So the safe gets stolen. There's money in it. There's guns in it. There's jewelry. Jewelry in it. And of course, there's sex sex tapes. tapes. They don't even think about the sex tape until it gets released. They're like, oh, millions of dollars in jewelry and guns. They're not even considering the fact that this sex tape is in there until one day they see it on the news. And they actually figured out who had stolen it because they found out one of the workers had a relative who was this man named Seth Wazarski. Mike Wazowski. Seth Wazarski, who is in the porn game. And they found out eating dinner, it was on the news. Which is heartbreaking. I mean, that sucks. And it just was a nightmare. This sex tape supposedly earned whoever was distributing it $77 million. They had a giant lawsuit against the distributor who went on the run and no one knows where he is. His company was in Seattle and now it's gone. It's crazy that we could never find this guy. It had to be a paper trail linking him to his old company, but nobody can find it. They say it made $77 million because it was available at every hotel, at all porn shops. They had all of these distributors in the lawsuit and they lost the lawsuit on the grounds that because they were public figures, this was technically newsworthy. That's disgusting. He keeps saying, goes, just because you know who I am and you know who she is doesn't mean you have the right to see us have sex. And I'm like, yeah. no, I agree. Like, that is so fucked up. But I do wonder if it would be different today. Or I wonder if that law is still in place. I hope not, but I bet it is. Then he talks about their relationship falling apart. I would say they were like doomed to failure, honestly. He says, our lives were crazy already. Pamela was working seven days a week on Baywatch and on the Barb Wire movie during the weekends. He was working with Motley Crue. And then, of course, the sex tape came out. And that is a lot of strain, which is not their fault at all. And then they had two children. I don't understand how she could be working seven days a week with two children. Me either. That sounds really stressful in every way. Then he says, but I didn't see it coming because trouble doesn't wear a bell. It just shows up and you either have the tools to deal with it or you don't. And I didn't have them back then. And he writes about their marriage falling apart. He says, after children are born, every marriage changes. You are no longer just lovers living for each other. You've got other responsibilities. And we had done everything so fast and had so much bullshit happening to us that we couldn't fucking deal. We were both kids ourselves who were learning as we went along and didn't know what the fuck we were doing. I will call out kids ourselves. He was 35. Yeah. And she was like 30. Yeah. So if they got married when he was 32 or 33 and then had two kids in the next three years, I mean, they weren't 
They're not kids. They have kids, but they're not kids. Then he says, when everything got overwhelming for us, Pamela focused on the children and let our relationship slide. She let us slip apart because her life became about being a mom. I mean, she's working seven days a week and trying to make time for her children. You're right. She does not have time to put you first. That just is how it... I'm sorry. At a certain point, you have to prioritize. Of course, I felt the kids were number one. But in my mind, we had to find a way for everyone to be number one. I don't know. I guess something has to suffer when you add two new spices to the soup. But I didn't want that to happen. I would like to take this time to remind everybody about how he broke up with Heather Locklear because she wasn't ready to be a mom because she was so busy. Heather Locklear, by the way, had a child four years after they divorced. So it's not like she was against children. She just wasn't ready at that moment. At the exact same time that she had her kid, he's having his kid. And now he's about to divorce this wife because she put too much effort into being a mom. So tell me, Tommy, what's the perfect amount of mom, woman, wife combo that you're looking for that they have to like hover that exact line so that you don't divorce and cheat on them? Also, can I just say that this thing of like, I get kids have to be number one, but why can't we all be number one? That's not how rankings work. If everyone's number one, no one's number one. Also, it's not like they're like eight and seven. I mean, they're literally one and newborn. Wait till they're four before you start complaining that you're not getting enough attention. Wait till they sleep through the night. Wait till she has to stop breastfeeding. So he's acting out all the time. She says that he's acting out on her set. He's possessive. She says... Instead of being on the same team, we started blaming each other. I withdrew and got really into the kids. And Tommy would be like, what about me? And I'd say, what do you mean? What about you? It started getting weird. He wanted me to wear a pager on the back of my Baywatch bathing suit. I had to be on call for him. And then he goes, babe, we both had pagers. Isn't that why we got them? And then she goes, then it got to the point where he'd come to the set and punch out all the cabinets in my trailer and do donuts in his testarossa. He got wild. He'd be on every set I was ever on if I had to kiss someone. He'd sit there and threaten people and just stare them all down. When I was on break, he'd scare everyone away. He'd be like, this is my time. This is my wife. He tries to clear it up. He's like, no, that was one day and one argument. And it's like, all right. He also says, kids don't come with a manual. There's no tried and true how-to book on raising a family. I started feeling needy and wondering what happened to me and Pamela's priorities. I kept thinking, where is the love? And he talks about the Black Eyed Peas song and how much he loves it. And it's like, my God, you're a fucking dork. That was his favorite song of 2003. What a great message, quote. (laughs) Then one night, they're cooking dinner And something happens. He's not sure what. He doesn't remember. Everything snapped one night just after Dylan was born. I was making dinner and we had just cracked a bottle of wine and we were splitting the first class together. It was one of those moments that started innocently enough and got more intense than I ever could have imagined. No one was drunk. No one was already pissed off about anything. It just exploded. I would bet she was pissed off already about something. It sounds like they were both very pissed off. He just punched a hole in her cabinet. Yeah. And also, I feel like the specifying of the lack of substance here feels... Suspicious. Suspicious. Neither of us really know what started it. I think I was looking for a pan and one of us said something that rubbed the other one the wrong way. I threw the pan back in the cabinet and I remember her saying that she was going to call her mom to come over because I was scaring her. I didn't want her mom to come over anymore. She was at her house a lot as it was. I asked her a bunch of times not to call her, but Pamela did anyway. With Dylan in one arm, she picked up the phone to call her mom. I went over and pressed the receiver button down as she tried to dial and asked her, please not to call. She picked up the phone again and I hung it up please do not call. She did it again and then again. And each time I hung it up and then blam, she turned and clocked me in the jaw. I was stunned. I grabbed her by the shoulders and said, what the fuck is wrong with you? What are you doing? I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't believe this was happening. Both of our boys were crying, watching mom and dad fight. Pamela still had Dylan in her arms and she led Brandon with her into the playroom off the kitchen. 
as she did, I kicked her in the bum. And I'm so sorry I ever did that. I am. I still regret it to this day. I just want all of you readers to know that I'm not in denial about what I did. I take full responsibility. But I also want to be clear about this. I was not wearing steel-toed boots and kicking her like some drunk guy in a bar crawl. I was wearing my Ugg slippers and it was an emotional reaction of mine to the punch I just took in the chops. At this point, I'm losing my mind. I just wanted the boys to stop crying and I want this all to stop. I go to the playroom and ask Pamela if I can take Brandon outside for a walk. I needed one too. She didn't want me to and she corralled the kids around her as if I was going to hurt them. Now I was running on nothing but emotions and that is bad at any time. Neither of us were thinking straight. We went back and forth verbally and no one was letting up. All I wanted to do was separate everyone, the boys and us. We needed time apart to cool down, just to breathe and remember how much we loved each other. Emotion ruled over reason and I grabbed Brandon to take him outside with me. She fought me, pulling him away from me so I pushed her away Dylan was still in her arms and unfortunately he bumped his head on the chalkboard next to where she was sitting I'm so sorry Dylan I never meant for that to happen and I regret it every single day and as it was stated in the police report Pamela broke a nail they even have pictures of it okay I mean there's so much to break down here let's start with the idea that they were just having an innocent fight and she was trying to call it her mom and he was saying please do not call I'm sorry does this sound like a moment where he was remembering his manners his p's and q's please I am simply being reasonable here you're a crazy woman trying to call your mother I'm simply asking you to respect my boundaries and my boundaries are you don't speak to anyone outside of this (laughs) I mean truly and then he's like how dare she punch me and it's like well what it sounds like is things got so out of control that she was she says she was scared I'm gonna call my mom and you refused to let her leave you were isolating her and she was already afraid she felt she had to escape and then for you be like what I kicked her in the bum with an Ugg slipper like they're just pals Gabin or something I pinched a touche I kicked a bum it's like haven't we all I took us I mean it's so insane and then he's like look I'm sorry I was running on emotions all I wanted to do was go on a walk for my kid I mean you're ripping your child away from the mom that is insane and then the thing that makes me the most angry is the way he's like he bumped his head on the chalkboard next to where he was sitting to this day I'm so sorry he ever bumped his little noggin what the fuck happened was he concussed also okay and here's what I really want to get to And as it was stated in the police report, Pamela broke a nail. They even have pictures of it. That is such a way of undermining whatever happened to her that night. The idea that it's like, oh, and yeah, I should go to jail because Pamela broke a nail. I got socked in the face, which he mentions multiple times. All I did was a kick in the bum, a little knock to the head. Oh, what? A a broken nail. We separated and I carried Brandon outside to the fountains at the front of our house. He liked to go down there and listen to frogs, so that's what we did. While I was outside, Pamela called the cops. After our walk, Brandon and I were sitting in the playroom when I heard a man's voice asking me to stand up and turn around. It was a cop already in the house and I hadn't even heard him come in. Pamela had already told them her side of the story on the phone, so I was arrested without question. While I was sitting in the cop car handcuffed, I asked the sheriff why he wouldn't listen to what I had to say. His answer was, in California, it's whoever gets to the phone first. If you would have called, this whole thing would have been reversed. What the fuck? This was February 24th, 1998, just five days after our third year anniversary. The next day, I was labeled a wife beater by the media. And then what makes me mad is, so he was on probation from that time he knocked out the paparazzo who maced Pamela. So when the police get there, they found he had this giant collection of guns. And he goes, apparently that violated my probation. Guess I should have read the small print on those court papers. He mentions that most of the guns were illegal to possess. 
wasn't even illegal because he was on probation. They were illegal to possess. Like the idea that it was just an oversight. I'm sorry, Tommy Lee. I have a feeling that you have lawyers who will tell you that you're not allowed to own guns. Just the idea that this was all just some unfair thing up against him and all he's ever done is protect the loves of his life. And the way he illustrates it, she led the cops to my gun collection. Like she told the police about all of this. He really lays it out. Like I was on probation because I protected her one time against paparazzi who were attacking her. And then she threw me to the wolves and she told the cops I was violating my probation and she did this and she did that. And it's like, bitch, this line about him taking full responsibility for the kick to the bum. It's like, fuck off, dude. So he goes into jail. He's there for two nights before he gets out on bail. And he's ultimately sent to jail on May 21st, 1998. So that's three or four months after he was arrested. I was sentenced to three years in jail. In the end, I served four months and was let out early for good behavior with probation. That was the time that changed my life. So then he goes on to be like, between the time I was arrested and went to court and then went to jail, Pamela and I were still fighting, talking, and still at each other and still so crazy about each other that we could not leave each other alone. But it felt like everyone in the world was a part of our breakup, which didn't help. I, I didn't want to go public with all the bullshit, but she did. She really did. She went for the full-on media blitz and made me look like shit in every available media outlet. I've always tried to take the high road when I get into fucked up shit with people. I try to never judge anybody. And if I'm going to do it, I never do it in public. I mean, shut the fuck up. So I didn't say anything about Pamela, even on those days when I felt like going the fuck off on her. To me, being silent guy was the right thing to do, but it sucked because when you say nothing, people automatically assume you're guilty. Fuck them. Let them talk. They don't know shit about me. He also writes about how they're trying to work things out and then... After he gets out, they spend New Year's Eve together. They drink some champagne in the hot tub. And then she tells the parole officer that he consumed alcohol, which he's not allowed to do on parole. So he's like, we spend New Year's Eve together and Pamela came over and we hopped into the hot tub and I made the mistake of cracking a bottle of champagne to celebrate what felt like a new beginning. I was on probation and consuming alcohol violated the fuck out of it. If I were to be tested or if someone testified that I had consumed booze at all, I was heading back to jail. That night, celebrating with Pamela felt right to both of us. I didn't realize for a second that the champagne we shared was a full clip of hollow point bullets served to her on a platter. Bad move. On May 26, 2000, Pamela pulled the hammer back in court and shot those hollow points at will. He went back to jail for four days. Nothing's his fault. Everyone's out to get him. He one time had champagne with his wife. Wow, poor Tommy. And she used it against him. Poor Tommy is the only person who's never been explained his probation before. It wasn't his fault that he broke probation. And then he drags his kids into it. He's like, God, I just hate that they're going to see all this when they're older. All the divorce rage that went back and forth between us. Yeah, dude, I don't know. This all happened in public. And then he talks about how mad he was when he found out that she had dated Kid Rock, who he calls Bob exclusively. That's so funny. They had recorded together and he goes, that was the first night I met Bob was when they recorded. And I had met him only one other time after that, just chilling in his hotel room after some show or the other. We had made music. We had partied. We were friends. And I thought this cat was my bud. Of course you didn't. Anyone you've hung out with twice in a professional setting is not your bud. I feel like I would have been like, man, I like am sad that she's moving on with Kid Rock, not I thought he was my friend. <laughs> I mean, also, by the way, at this point, he's dating Carmen Electra. So it's not like, how could you date someone else? He was also dating someone else. Yeah. And then he concludes it with being like, the only really regret of the whole situation was how much money we wasted on lawyers. I wish we could have been more mature. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everybody wishes you were more mature. So then he talks about his time in jail which is fucked up. So he was in solitary confinement for his own safety. And as a podcast, we don't believe that's humane. I really think solitary confinement is a horrific thing to do to someone. He got like 15 minutes a week of outside time in a cage by himself on the roof. 
It seems like it wasn't because of the severity of his crimes, but because they had separated him because he was a celebrity. Yes. And when he asked if he could be with everyone else, they said, well, Rob Robert Downey Jr. one time asked to be with everyone else and they beat the shit out of him the minute we let him go. But I would still be like, I don't know. I'd rather be broken out on the street than I like, know. I'd be like, let him beat me down and then see that I'm cool. And <laughs> then we could just hang out and play chess. Yeah, you know me. I would rather get beat up than be quiet. <laughs> me too. And I think it'd be a good opportunity for me to learn chess. Are they playing chess in jail? I don't know. He talks about how nature was reduced to cockroaches and flies and he would talk to them. He would see them in his cell and just like have little conversations with his three cockroach buddies. He says jail was hell for me. Somebody was like, look, you can't count the days. You have to count the weeks. And he goes, he was right. I had four months to kill in there an entire summer. And summer is the season I live for. Oh, I had to go to jail during the summer. Come on. You don't understand. Something special about me is that I love summer. You can't make me go to jail for this. I know I beat my wife, but come on. I beat her in the winter. Can't I go in the winter? I live in Southern California, and summer is the only time of year where we get any sunshine. (laughs) I will say I also feel bad about this time where he's readjusting to society. He has a hard time going back to life and talking to people. You know what he doesn't have a hard time talking about? What? He like gives all the jail secrets of how people make dice and wine. And I know everybody does it, but something about the way he does it, he like talks about how if you have really good behavior, you become trustees who are like the inmates who help out with the kitchen and stuff. And they're the ones who, if they're your friends, will bring you like drugs and alcohol or whatever it is that you want. And I was just like, I don't know, dude, don't say like, like, be cool. He like reveals all the secrets about everything. At the beginning when he was talking about the magic tricks for his drum, he like explains exactly how David Copperfield does his tricks. And And I'm just like, like, man, I wasn't going to tell you, but I forgot. I wrote it down anyway. Be cool for one minute. You're such a fucking narc. He really is a narc. Yes. That's why like, I'm like, what is so deeply unrock and roll about him? It's that he's such a narc. He is. That's why he would have gotten the shit beat out of him in regular jail. So he comes out of jail and he does his solo album. He writes about the anger management he was prescribed. He writes about his time in jail. Honestly, everyone hates his solo work. So then he writes The State of Societal Debt, a.k.a. Anger Management and Community Service. He was prescribed to a lot of anger management class. And he writes about discovering powerlessness and surrendering, blah, blah, blah. And then he writes about how meaningful the community service was. He, I don't know. I don't really care. After the Pamela chapters, like nothing of interest happens. It's just random little garbage nonsense. This is state of mutual appreciation is the next chapter. And it's just people giving testimonials. And he has, he writes to a bunch of famous people and says, will you say something nice about me for my book? And some of them do. And most of them don't respond. Trent Radzner, Pink, and Steve O. Steve O just rewrites the story from Steve O's memoir. Pharrell Williams writes a really nice thing. And then he has this like running joke where like... I. I don't know if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like the running bit is that he doesn't know who Pharrell is because he's black. So he keeps mixing him up with other black guys. So Pharrell writes something really nice. He goes, he's a great drummer with a lot of style. He keeps his chops up in terms of technique and his style and drumming. Also, pour some sugar on me. Can be played in the middle of any hip hop party. I love that. And his dick pipes up and goes, man, that's awesome. That Pharrell paid respect. I've always loved his shit. Ever since when doves cry. Oh, wait, my bad. Pharrell is that producer guy from Atlanta who dates Janet Jackson. The little guy, right? Discovered Criss Cross. Nice. Thanks, bro. So I'm pretty sure those are not Pharrell. No, he's talking about Prince. He does it again later, not to skip ahead. He writes about Jermaine Dupree, and his dick goes, don't you mean Pharrell, bro? And I was like, oh, okay. So this is like a running joke that you can't tell black people apart. Hilarious. That's a good bit. Anyway, then September 11th happens, and this was really hard on Tommy Lee specifically because other bad stuff happened to him around that time too. And so he was like, no, for me, 9-11 was like really bad. He actually had three towers that fell. There were three tragedies that happened for him. So he was like, yeah, the rest of America watched two towers fall. I had three. 
one of his towers was the two towers. <laughs> <laughs> then he gets into the tragic death of a little boy named Daniel who drowned to death when he was four years old at his son Brandon's birthday party in the summer of 2001. That was the first tower. The other two were soon to follow. So I guess Daniel's one tower, his dad's the second tower, and then the two towers are actually the third tower. Yeah. So his dad passed away the week of 9-11. He had been suffering from cancer for a long time. It was a long and painful sickness. His mom was there the whole time by his side, and he writes about it very sweetly, I will say. And then he gets into his first tower, which was a little boy named Daniel who passed away at Brandon's fifth birthday party at the pool. And I mean, if his story is true, which... If somebody was like, that's not not actually what happened, I would be like, okay, I believe that. But what he says happened is he had this birthday party. And of course, he's always trying to make himself look good. He's like, it was the first birthday party I'd thrown for either of my boys after Pamela and I divorced. It was my first effort as a single dad. The day was June 5th, 2001. So he had about 30 and 40 people at the house, including kids and adults. And he says that he had made it clear if your kid comes to the pool party, you have to have an adult watching him. Daniel had been sent with a nanny. At some point, the nanny left and was like, hey, that chick over there is going to be in charge of Daniel. And Tommy was like, okay. Said it was like an aide from the school. So it was a woman he recognized. And then at one point, there was just a ton of screaming and a woman had dragged the boy out and they were giving him CPR. Tommy called the cops. EMTs got there as soon as they could, but it was too late. And it turned out the woman who was supposed to be watching the little boy had gone to walk her dog. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but you can't not watch a four-year-old in the pool. Yeah. So I do think like if it's somebody's fault, it's her fault. Eventually the parents sued Tommy Lee. He was found innocent, but I would say it was her fault. But then he found out that the woman who had pulled the little boy out of the pool sold her story to National Enquirer for $10,000, which is disgusting. He said, I'm the perfect guy to place blame on the irresponsible tattooed rock star with a history of bad behavior. He is found not guilty. He says, they decide I'm not responsible for Daniel's death. Standing there, hearing that decision that day, I'm relieved, but I'm not happy because there is no victory in this situation. How can anyone win when Daniel is dead? This is like, I think the one earnest moment. You have to be a complete monster to not think it's sad that a four-year-old dies. So when people are like, I feel sadness about a child dying, I'm like, I believe you because to not believe you would mean that you were actually somebody insane. Yeah. And then he writes The State of Engagement, a.k.a. Maite. He says this is Prince's ex who had lost a child with Prince. Maite's actual story is that she was 16 years old and started working with Prince. He was given legal guardianship of her so that they could date and go on tour together. She ended up marrying Prince in her early 20s. They had a child together that passed away shortly after its birth, like days after its birth because of a condition. Then they went on Oprah like a week later and acted like they had a happy, healthy baby. And then it was revealed later that they had lost their baby at that point, and they had to kind of backpedal and be like, we were just too shocked and numb, and we didn't know how to handle it, so we just said that our baby was alive. And then she had another miscarriage with Prince, and then they divorced, and then a year later is when she meets Tommy Lee. So he's like, yeah, I met Maite. I had known her. I'd seen her. She was beautiful. I knew she'd been through some shit. She'd been through some shit. So they meet at this party. They start having conversations and he finds their relationship to be kind of the opposite of his relationship with Pamela. It wasn't like that insane heated passion, but he says it had been a long time since I met someone I could discuss my life with so honestly and naturally. It seems like they just stayed up all night talking together and they were supposed to actually work together on music. And he says something that they had that no other relationship had was she understood the artistry of it all. She actually ended up going on tour with him and she was his dancer. They would collaborate together and she sings on some of his tracks. 
And they were able to like bond over the same language, she says, because they both shared the language of music. Yeah. And then after a year, they get engaged. She really wants to have a child. I mean, she's been through a fuck ton of trauma. She really wants a baby. He is in the middle of an enormous custody battle with Pamela Anderson, who was trying to get full custody. And so he just like didn't have time for it. And I also don't think he talked to her about her troubles at all. I think he was like, she was there for me when I needed to vent emotionally and I didn't know a single thing about her. And then she kind of sits down and is like, all right, what's the plan with our future? We've been engaged for a year. I want to have a baby. Like, I don't understand what's going on. And he was like, I can't be that guy. He goes, again, bad timing, really bad. We had been engaged for more than a year and Maite wanted to know where the relationship was going, when we were going to get married and when we would start a family. A part of me thought that she was being really selfish and that turned me off. The other part of me didn't blame her. We had been in limbo for a while, mostly because of the drama going on in my life. Her biological clock was ticking and her life was on hold. I couldn't give her everything she needed and deserved. I told her that if she wanted to go, she should because she should be in a relationship with someone who could give her everything she wanted. Right then, there was no way I could be that guy. How sweet of you, Tommy, to release her. She asked me why I had asked her to marry her. I said, because I love you. Sometimes that isn't enough. Anyway, then he writes a chapter about gambling in Vegas and winning $100,000. That reminds me of Matthew McConaughey's chapter about like winning that wrestling match. Men love to be like, I'm better than everybody. He's like, nobody beats the house except for me. Then he has a chapter called State of Adoration. It's about all the crazy shit his fans have done to be close to him and how annoying it is. Yeah, he writes, God bless the freaks. Then he gets the State of Medication, which is an entire chapter about how, quote, I have a Jägermeister machine in my house. Great. Then he says, state of melodic memory, a.k.a. fill your head with music, where he talks about the bands he loves. One of his favorite bands of all time is Snow Patrol. It really just caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting Snow Patrol. Like Led Zeppelin, sure, that makes sense in here. Electronic music as a category, okay, I hear ya. (laughs) And then it's state of farewell, a.k.a. your exit, my entrance. At 41 years old, I am at a very interesting point in my life, and I feel lucky to be here. I have learned, I have loved, and after knocking my head against walls of all kinds, some of which I built myself, I've discovered who I am and what I want out of life. And what he wants is happiness. Yeah, he says that he and Pamela are back on good terms. He took his boys to the X Games. We'll talk more about this later. He and Pamela continue to hook up, like even in front of the kids, they would make out, which I think is really confusing. We're going to, like I said earlier, get more into Tommy and Pam on the Patreon. And then he like writes himself this letter and in it, he says, to tell the truth, I feel a bit lost right now. I'm in my forties. I don't know if I have the energy to put into a relationship that may or may not work. So far, I've been through two marriages, one annulment and one engagement. And here I am. Why should I go down that path again? That's where it ends. Like, what a weird note to end on. To start off with, like, I'm so crazy. I had the best life of all time. I have to add everything, blah, blah, blah. And then end and be like, well, actually, I'm in my 40s and I've never been more alone or lost. Anyway, <laughs> bye, guys. <laughs> See you later. In conclusion, Ashley, final thoughts? I think that Tommy Lee is actually a pretty insecure man sitting on a fat hog. Is that his dick? Or is Yeah. It, okay. I think that that's like his whole thing is just that he's like kind of a pansy who loves to fuck. Yeah. The more I've been marinating on it, like, first of all, I think he might be one of the worst people ever. And to for the Patreon, when we hear a second person's opinion of experiencing him, I'm sure it's like worse than you can even imagine. Yeah. But this book was really just written as a jerk off to all of his mega fans. It was very much for all the incels who were like, Tommy Lee rocks and he fucked the hottest girl in the 90s. Yeah. Tell us more about it. Yeah, he is just like that insecure and overly persistent guy who, because he was sitting behind the drums for Motley Crue, got further than most of those kinds of guys. Anyway, I mean, in conclusion, I hate Tommy Lee. And if you guys are fans of Taffy, who we love, the idea that Brittany Furlon would try to take on anyone to defend that man is psychotic. And 
if you've ever seen American Meme, which kind of chronicles the beginning of their relationship, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He found just a woman who will never question anything. Yeah. And we're going to dive further into their TikTok feud on the Patreon, as well as we're going to watch Pam and Tommy on Hulu, which Pamela Anderson did not want made. We'll get all into that. Um, You guys, we love you so much. Please don't forget, if you're looking for a way to connect with other worms, we've got the Wormhole on Facebook, which is an amazing place to do so. We've got our weekly comedy shows at Nikki's Unisex, 7 p.m. every Thursday in Williamsburg, which everyone is encouraged to come hang out and then meet each other afterwards. And we've got our live show that we plugged at the beginning. So tickets in our Instagram bio and in show notes. We love you so much. And we'll see you next week. Yes. And even more so, I love our five-star reviewing worms. Thank you so much. Thank you to Fiddlies. I am happy to hear you play the fiddle anytime. Thank you, Jesse Speaks. You can say anything you want to me. Vet Get He, I believe you'll get him. Skater Gal 1998. She was a skater gal and I said, see you soon, gal. Thank you, Juliet C111. You are the Juliet to this podcast, Romeo. KHC15123, even better than KFC. Trisha Smiley Face, thank you for bringing a smile to my damn face. Thank you, Shumard. I hope you shroom hard this weekend. Thank you, Mr. Ginny Bug. You are the cutest bug and I would never smash you. Thank you, D Foley 614. I appreciate you for the Foley art you've provided here today. Thanks, Rita De Diamonds. You are the shiniest bitch I know. Thank you, Relly 80. Anything you say, I believe for Relly. Thank you, Hanny Cook. I hope you stir up something wonderful tonight. Thank you, Neon Tiger TK. You are so bright and vibrant. I love it so much. Thank you, A.H. Shell243. This is an incredible review for Shell. Thank you, Kelly W95, your review for the W. And that is all this week. Thank you guys so much. I adore you endlessly.